This is Ivadian X, and welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. One of the things that's really been interesting over the last several years has been the introduction of video into DSLR cameras. Whether you love it or have absolutely no interest in it, there's no denying that it's making a real difference in the lives of a lot of working professional photographers. One of the big questions a lot of editorial and commercial photographers are being asked now is, do you do video? And increasingly, the answer needs to be yes. So, photographers like today's guest, Bruce Dorn, have fully embraced this capability of the camera, not just because of the creative outlets it provides, but also because it provides them another revenue source for their business. But you hear that despite the obvious challenges that are involved in using an HDSLR to capture video, it's a wonderful way of, of a photographer with a keen eye to be able to express themselves visually as well as helping them to tell a story. To help serve this end, Bruce Dorn has designed and is now distributing and selling his own camera rig, which helps you to use the cameras like the 5D Mark III or the, the Nikon D700 to produce video and be much more in control of the camera when you're doing so. And unlike a lot of the other camera rigs that are very complex and burdensome, this kit fits into your camera bag. And I've been using it for the last year, and it's made all the difference in my ability to be able to use my camera to produce video and get accurate focus when I need it. But I'll let Bruce explain more about that in the interview, and I hope that you check it out and enjoy our conversation with Bruce Dorn. This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by Adobe Lightroom 4. Perfect your photography from shoot to finish with Adobe Photoshop Lightroom 4 software. One of my favorite parts of the new Lightroom 4 software is the ability to create books. And while you're able to output these books using Blurb or another service viewer to actually create bound books, one of my favorite things to do with it is to create PDF books. Whether it's images from a vacation or a personal project, I'm able to open Lightroom 4 and pull those images in to a very clean and simple layout. And I can do that in a matter of seconds. Then I can customize a variety of different things from the colors of the backgrounds, including type or caption information, even the sizes of the images or their orientation. I can put a single image on a page. I can do multiple images on one page or actually spread an image over two pages. The final result, I end up downloading to my iPad. So when I'm walking the streets and I'm doing photography and someone asks me what I'm doing or if I want to approach someone about making a portrait, all I need to do is open up my iPad and I can show them the images collected in a book form. Now, I've done a video on my YouTube channel to show you exactly how I do this, so I'll have a link for it on the website. Adobe has provided a variety of different materials for you to learn how to make more out of Lightroom 4. You'll find those by clicking on the link on the Candid Frame website. And if you've never had the opportunity to try it, why don't you download the free trial version of Lightroom 4, which is fully functional, and discover how Lightroom 4 can make all the difference in your photography. This episode also has the support of Squarespace. Our friends at Squarespace have this great product. It's a do-it-yourself website builder that helps you to make a website or a blog in just a few minutes. 
Squarespace handles all the hosting, gives you a free domain name, and has 24-hour customer support. Everything on the platform is drag and drop, so it's incredibly easy to use. So if you've been delaying creating a website because you're intimidated by all the coding and everything involved in, in constructing and maintaining a website, the answer is right here. For example, you can drag pictures straight from your desktop or create custom layouts with multiple columns and text that wraps perfectly around your images and videos. The templates are clean and crisp. It puts the focus on your photography. Additionally, you can switch to a different template at any time. One more thing that's really special about Squarespace is that your images will look great on any device because the website you create will scale automatically to fit perfectly on an iPad, iPhone, computer, or any other electronic device. Import content from your blogs and push your content back out to your social networks. Go to squarespace.com forward slash candid frame to start a free trial. No credit card is required. When you're ready to purchase, click enter an offer code below the pricing at checkout and enter the offer code candid frame 11 to get a 10% discount. That's squarespace.com forward slash candid frame. Offer code candid frame 11. One word, candid frame 11. Well, Bruce, welcome to the Candid Frame. I'm excited to have you on the show. Hey, my pleasure. I'm uh, excited to talk to you. Yeah, I've been familiar with your work for for a while. You're a Canon Explorer of Light, so uh, it's it's through there that I've I've gotten to know a lot of your work. But I've also had the opportunity to use some of the equipment that you've done at IDC uh, Photo and Video. But before we we get into that, I, I really would like to hear more about your story as a photographer. You started primarily as a photojournalist and editorial photographer before you start working more and more with motion. Tell us about those early years and why the the visual became such a passion for you. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I I come from a a line of uh, folks in medicine, mostly apothecaries, but uh, also uh, artists on both sides of the family tree and uh, received no resistance when I decided I was going to go to art school rather than medical school. So uh, that was a, a, a nice turn of events for me that I only came to appreciate later in life. While I was uh, still in art school, I started to enter a few competitions. I'm a big believer in competitions as sort of the stone on which we sharpen ourselves and had some good luck early on. I got uh, uh, sort of discovered while I was, I guess, between my junior and senior year in college, way back in the early 70s, Condé Nast publications, uh, you know, Vogue, Seventeen, Glamour, mm-hmm. those magazines, had a long-standing college competition that I only found out about by way of a girlfriend's fashion magazine laying up on the, the uh, coffee table. Um, entered the competition, was one of the winners. Next thing you know, I was shooting sweaters in Iceland for... Mademoiselle magazine, and then off to uh, shoot runway in Paris. Uh, shot uh, uh, Sonia Raquel, uh, Kenzo, Betsy Johnson. Right out of working in a Texaco station as a mechanic to fashion photographer in New York and Europe. Wow. Culture shock, if there ever was one. <laughs> but that must have cemented the deal for you almost immediately, huh? Oh yeah, it was fantastic. Uh, great opportunities. Met some really encouraging people. Really wasn't equipped in any way to be in the fashion industry other than having a good eye. I was 
certainly, uh, you know, working on my composition back then and working on my lighting skills. But uh, my passion was more in in journalism and, and even hard news. So while I was in Manhattan and uh, doing my thing in the fashion industry, I sort of wandered down the street to the Time Life building and they had just closed Life magazine, but they were starting a little small format photojournalism style magazine that eventually degraded into something quite different. But uh, I was one of the first shooters for People magazine, and I was doing photo essays and, and human interest stories and stuff like that. And uh, that, that really resonated with me a lot more. And uh, pretty soon I, I folded my tents as a fashion photographer and kind of I decided to work my way well with no grand plan, but as a stringer for Time Life and, and a couple of other folks, uh, found my way into the Midwest, uh, ended up taking a teaching position at you know, Indiana University's Indianapolis campus and helped to develop a degree program in photography out there while I was working as a freelance photojournalist. Hmm. You know, I've, I've heard many photographers talk about the, those times about being making appointments and meeting with editors and having careers start in much in much the same way there's a certain tenacity i think that that goes along with that whether you know whether you're you're trying to make a go of it then or or or, or now but uh, how important was it to have the the desire enough to actually put yourself out there because there you are, you know, you're doing primarily fashion work, and I can imagine some people going, well, why do you want to do photojournalism? You're shooting, you know, girls in bikinis and, and fine clothes. Do you understand what I'm saying? That in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, they look at your existing work and they're going, well, you know, what are you doing? You have no business trying to do this other type of stuff. You know, it, it's it's all about instinct. It's about following your gut. And uh, I was a big fan of Peter Beard's work. You know, he... He was a animal control officer in Africa, but he also shot fashion, and he was uh, quite a, a diarist. He kept uh, these incredible diaries. I think uh, the publisher, Tashin, uh, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, uh, you can still get a copy of one of his African diaries. So I, I kind of felt that, it, it, that, that the things were sort of the yin and yang of a well-rounded uh, personality and career. I was interested in the very real, and I was also interested in the beauty of the superficial. So rather than denying one avenue of interest, I just decided to pursue them and and let the chips fall as they might. And uh, it's sort of always worked that way for me. Constant notion that if you don't reinvent, you're stagnant. And whatever you're doing is, you know, maybe fantastic, but always look ahead, look ahead, see what see what else might be out there to explore. And uh, that little tidbit of philosophy has served me very well. I, I, I think you just gotta, gotta trust your instincts, even with it, when they tell you to do some wacky things. And uh, uh, one of the things about being young and kind of footloose is that you can make decisions that a person with more responsibilities might not make. And, and uh gives you an opportunity to explore stuff you might otherwise yeah. never discover. Did you find that the, the pressure of the, the deadlines and the demands of having to work on a team, say on the fashion shoots and then just the, just the short turnaround time that you had in editorial really helped you sort of grow creatively in terms of what you were doing? Yeah, you know, being a part of a team, um, you know, I I identify myself primarily as a commercial image maker. I mean, I do my own work for my own gratification, but as a commercial 
image maker. Commerce is is the first word in that thing. So there's there's uh, some other greater cause that you're serving, and if it involves a team, well, that that's just fine. Certainly, I have. You must have a very strong opinion. You must have a really strong point of view to have any manner of success. But that doesn't mean you can't be working with a stylist that also has a really strong point of view and a makeup artist that has a really strong point of view, and. Sort of, it's sort of hurting cats, but at the same time, what you what you're doing is you're creating something that is larger than one individual might be able to accomplish. And the stuff that I learned in my very early days, when I would be assigned a fashion stylist and a, a, a fashion editor from the magazine, and a, a collection of of clothing that needed to be displayed. Uh, I was learning all the building blocks that led to my successes as a director. Uh, you know, I spent quite a bit of time in later years in uh, Hollywood working as a commercial director. And, and boy, uh, nothing quite like being a, the general in a creative army. If it's all about you, if it's all about your ego, you you fail to take advantage of these incredible uh, personalities, talents, and tools that are around you. So uh, collaborative work, I think, is valid in its own right. Mm. Uh, not better than personal work, but it's, it's just amazing. It's, it's, it's like having a huge creative budget to spend. You know, you, you suddenly are stronger because you have strengths in other areas that you don't personally have, you know, when you work as a team. What was the first opportunity that you had to to produce commercials to start working with with motion and tell us a little bit about that well um the very very first stuff was when i was uh still at the university and teaching i i, I knew folks in the local community and there were a handful of uh commercial sh- uh, filmmakers in the area uh someone who i'd worked with in an ad agency in indianapolis uh asked me to come in and be a lighting consultant on a a campaign that was being shot by a local production company. And the local production company was good, but they were kind of the, you know, three-light setup formulated approach. And my style was a little bit looser and more of a process of discovery. And our director liked that in my stills work, asked me to come in and uh, function as a lighting director, a lighting consultant. I'm not sure the director from the production company was that thrilled with that. But and I made some impact on it, and then uh, I was offered an opportunity to, to shoot a couple of things. Shortly after that, I, I relocated out to Phoenix following uh, uh, a friend out that direction. And um, same thing, I started off as uh, a commercial shooter. I had done a lot of annual reports. I was looking for that kind of work. wasn't really around. It was more tabletop and product-type photography. But there was a fair amount of, I guess it was mostly non-union uh, national production. In other words, if you wanted to, wor- uh, to work in a right-to-work state rather than in California on a lower-budget campaign, you might have gone out to Phoenix from Chicago or New York to uh, get a production company to shoot for you. And I got a couple of opportunities like that. The, the, actually, the very ver- first job that I did was as a director of photography on a campaign for Blue Cross Blue Shield. And uh, I had no idea how the process even worked. Uh, kind of kept my mouth shut and uh, started to establish the shots based on the storyboard. The director schmoozed the client and eventually asked me if I was ready. And he said action. And then when we were done, he said cut. And I started to realize I was doing most of the rest of it as the director of photography. And we did a f- couple of jobs like that, got to the finals of the Clio's uh, with 
that very first campaign. Uh, and then I ended up uh, opening a small production company and putting myself out there as a director cameraman. And uh, that led to uh, another trip to the Clio finals where I was up against what was then the biggest special effect house in the world, Robert Abel and Associates in, in uh, Hollywood. And I don't remember if I won that or if they won it, but they offered me a job and I moved out to Los Angeles and became a creative director in that company and was off and running. I think we probably had the biggest budgets in the world at that time in the mid-80s, and it was a fascinating experience. What was what was allowing you to stand out at the time? I mean, you didn't have a lot of experience under your belt, but what, what, what were they seeing in your work that made them feel like this guy is doing something unique and interesting? Lighting, 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 lighting. Like you say in real estate, location, location, location. I was interested in lighting from the very beginning. The first thing I bought was a Canon, I think it was a Pentax with a 50 millimeter Tacomar lens on it. A, and then a, a small, a Strobinar, a speed light, one of the old potato masher style speed lights. And then some hot lights. And honestly, I don't think I've ever sold a light that I've ever purchased because unlike cameras, they don't really go out of style, you know? I would say that when I hit Hollywood, it's about the same time that Tony Scott, uh, Adrian Lyon, Ridley Scott, uh, the British invasion was happening. Miami Vice was a breakout hit on television because of its heavily stylized lighting. And that was exactly uh, the kind of thing that I was doing. So I was fortunately a hot commodity almost instantly because of uh, the fact that I considered lighting to be what it was about, you know, you, you, you got to know your composition. You got to understand that you need to keep the move in movies. That's one of the things that a still shooter needs to understand is that while a compilation of scenes is much like a photo essay in terms of master shots, medium shots, and close-ups, it's about the character of that you develop within each of those shots, and lighting has a tremendous impact on that. Yeah. So you've been, you know, the, the early adapters of using like the 5D, Mark II, the 7D, and other cameras for, for, for video. So how did you have to start rethinking the use of light when it came to using these cameras as your motion capture device? Well, you know, I, I, I would say I probably learned most of what I know, or the, the, the foundation of what I know about lighting was built on trying to light with strobes. And with strobes, and especially strobes without modeling lights, you really have to be able to uh, previs. You have to be able to, in your mind's eye, you have to go, okay, this light is going to cast a shadow over there. And remember that this was in the day where uh, we didn't have the instant review of the uh, uh, LCD on the back of the camera. In some cases, we had Polaroids that were, you know, like the old 180s and 195s that would be strobe syncable. But I learned to light based upon an understanding of of what would happen rather than being able to see it. I knew that if this this light was two stops brighter than that one, I would get a certain effect. And there was a lot of painful hard knocks in gaining that knowledge. I, I shot a lot of terrible looking stuff. But by the time it came around to working with hot lights, in a way it was almost distracting because you, you know you you turn on a hot light. And it, it could be way too bright for the room, uh, for the ambient light. Trying to sweeten ambient light was one of my main things. Rather than overwhelming the existing light, 
I would look at a scene, and if it didn't look the way I wanted it to look, I would think, how would I improve this? If I was the lighting designer, if I was the architect, where would I have put a window? Would I have put a big, broad, north light window in this wall? If so, then a soft bank might be the thing to put in that position. I always try to be inspired by what is occurring naturally and then subtly tweak it to get across the emotional message I'm trying to get across. Now, with the newest generation of digital capture devices, whether it's a camcorder or an SLR, you get the instant feedback of looking at the scene. And I I will shoot a lot of stills to uh, while I'm adjusting my lighting. And then the advent of the nosebleed high ISO ratings that we have available to us was also a huge change, just a huge change. My approach to lighting in HDSLR is, well, essentially, I, I, I first thing I have to do is decide what my base frames per second uh, will be. Am I shooting at 24 frames per second, 30 frames per second, 60 frames per second? Double that to establish my shutter speed, and now my, that now we have a, a, a fixed factor. The shutter speed for 30 frames per second, I'm going to stick at a 60th of a second. Aperture dictates my depth of field and my bokeh, the way this scene looks, whether I'm including background elements or I'm obscuring them with depth of field. I pick an f-stop, and now I work my way through the ISOs to get the exposure level that I want using the ISO as an adjustment. It really gives you an incredible element of control that didn't exist in the film era. I love working with continuous light. I'm uh, a big fan of tungstens, although they have uh, a lot of challenges. The heat, the lack of ability to dim them with anything other than wires. You know, you drop wire into it. Uh, with fluorescence, like kinos and so on, mm, got a little bit of dimming capability in a couple of them, but not really so much. LED is kind of where it's at. I think that's the, the wave of the future got to be really careful with the multiple led sources the ones that are a, a grid of 128 little kernel sized led lights I, i'm a big fan right now of the sola series and the inca series uh, from light panels where it's uh, classic hollywood style instruments like a, a mole in between or something a focusing fresnel spotlight with an overdriven single LED in there or a cluster of LEDs, but no multiple shadows. Traditional light shaping instruments with LEDs that are dimmable, oh man, that's a gift. It's mm. just such a great time. They're cool. They run quiet. You don't have to drag out a generator. You don't have to tie into the building's mains. So much you can do with that lovely combination of higher ISO capability and cool dimmable lights that remain consistent in their color temperature yeah it's obviously listening to you that you have you're really in control of your your tools be it the the camera be it the lighting but i think that one of the bigger challenges in terms of trying to transition from still the video is the ability to be able to use all that to serve a, a story and one of the one of the videos that you have on your site that I've had a chance to to, to see a couple of times is the one you did on on the Arizona cowgirl, and oh, yes. um, it has all those elements. I mean, the images are just beautiful. The lighting, in many instances, is just just great. But the story is so engaging and interesting. And I was taking a look at it several times. I'm, I'm actually curious how much planning was involved in pulling this off and how much footage did you have to create because it looked like 
you know, you spent multiple days, you know, interviewing her and photographing her and then having to put all this stuff together. And I thought that would be a good launching point to share how you sort of envision telling a story, you know, uh, like that, not just with the technology, but just in terms of just the logistics in terms of putting it all together so that it comes off as a as an effective piece. Not to oversimplify it, but there's uh, narrative style filmmaking and there's documentary style filmmaking. And, you know, that falls into the latter category. I, I stumbled upon the, the Youth Rodeo Association. I was doing some beta testing for Uncle Can, and I think I had the 200 F2 uh, Super Tele and then the 800 5.6. And I was literally looking for something to shoot so that I could run some test footage or some stills and happened to be driving by the rodeo ground on an off weekend when there shouldn't have been anything going on but uh, there were some horse haulers so I, I went in looked around found a guy in an official looking shirt turned out to be Clay Bond the father of the principal in that piece, uh, Holly Bond. And uh, while he was not uh, one of the leaders of this particular Youth Rodeo Association, he he was a, a charming guy, used to uh, answering questions about the group. I cut right to the chase. I said, boy, this is looks fascinating. I'd, I'd love to uh, follow a couple of these kids around for a few weekends and see if, uh, if I could find a theme for a story. And he said, well, my daughter over there is, you know, a competitor in her last year of competition. And, and she and her boyfriend, I'm sure, would be happy to, to let you shoot some pictures of them. So I just started tagging along, and I, I let the, the story reveal itself to me. Uh, that, that's the beginning of what I hope to finish up as a longer piece. There's a, another young girl on there. Uh, there's a quick scene where a, a young kid gets bucked off of a... Uh, a steer, a, a bull rider in training, uh, a young girl named Arena, seven years old. So she was essentially coming into the sport. And I thought, well, I could book in this. I could follow one young girl who's just starting her rodeo career and another girl who's about to be booted out of the youth rodeo. And she'll decide whether she wants to follow it into adult rodeo or not. And maybe there's a bit of a story there. But what really emerged to me was the the family stuff, you know, uh, that initial serendipitous contact with Holly's dad and then getting to know uh, him, Holly, and their and her mom, Beth. Um, it just all became, it just all revealed itself to me. It was a story about uh, learning how to deal with, with uh, hunger. You know, everybody's hungry for success. They want to win. Everybody has obstacles that they have to overcome. It really becomes kind of a classic story arc of the protagonist having to, uh, uh, you know, uh, face some kind of an obstacle and either fail or overcome it. Then it becomes a matter, as it is in stills, of being observant. You know, the, the, the part where you stick the camera in front of your eye is, is in many ways the, the smallest part of it. It's about sensitivity to what's going on around you, about being aware of of the voices in the background. You, you got to kind of be like an air traffic controller. You hear everything, you discard that which is just um, so much noise and you glean out those little nuggets and then you figure out a way to polish those nuggets into something that is uh, valuable. It taught me a lot. I hadn't, I had never shot really any documentary stuff ever. I was uh, the kind of guy that worked from storyboards, big budgets, Lots of crews, you know, when I was in Hollywood, I did 
30 second spots that had three million dollar budgets you know i did super bowl spots and stuff like that and we knew exactly what we were going to do and we had a a creative army that attacked it this was really one of the very first times where a i was working with video because i was a motion picture filmmaker you know i shot with panavisions and aries i never even shot 16 i only shot 35 millimeter I hate video cameras. I, I, I don't like, I never liked the video look. I could never put my finger on what it was. Turns out what it was was, to a great degree, shutter speed and then the small sensor size. Depth of field is directly related to uh, the size of the format. In other words, if you put F11 on an 8x10 film camera, it's paper thin depth of field. F11 on the uh, a Minox or a pinky fingernail size sensor in a point-and-shoot camera is depth of field from the front element of the lens to infinity. So there were things that were just, that, that were not engineering things that they paid attention to. The engineers made the cameras capable of shooting HD, but they didn't make them look like film, really, until the DSLR came along with the large sensor, the capacity to pick the proper shutter speed, and then get that look. All of that, again, is just the tool, but nobody ever asks what kind of typewriter Hemingway wrote his stories on. So it, that, that's, you know, it's it, the technology that you deal with and, and the, and the uh, esoteric creative, creativity that you deal with are two things that are separate, but they're also intertwined. You know, who wins the race, the jockey or the horse? Yeah. Uh, it's a combination of both. So. Uh, an understanding of what your tools are capable of, and then an un- will help you to find an understanding of what they are appropriate uh, in their application. Yeah. You wouldn't use a hammer to cut wood. You wouldn't use a saw to drive nails. Once you know what it is you're trying to construct and you have an understanding of your tools, it all becomes a lot simpler and your results become a lot better. Yeah. I can imagine that the small form factor of the of the camera really uh, was a, an advantage as opposed to working with these much bulkier cameras because you could shoot more on on the fly. But how did oh, yeah. you negotiate the idea that, yeah, this camera makes it very easy to shoot, but I could also end up overshooting and not getting what I really need? Did at some point you find yourself figuring out the story as you were shooting or did after a couple of days of just ruminating over it and looking at what you had, you kind of realized what you needed and then shot from from that yeah it's kind of a combination of those two things i i think you sometimes like somebody who wants to be a writer and start a novel you stare at that blank screen you stare at that blank sheet of typing paper and you could sit there staring at it forever sometimes you have to just start pounding away it was a target rich environment you know i was out there with some telephotos i started taking on the challenge of pulling focus with a super telly getting those kinds of shots and then that's one flavor that's just one that's like having one spice you know it's it's fine but it gets pretty tedious to have that taste continuously so now now you start to think in terms of the psychology of lenses i mean i've always kind of had that percolating in the back of my head as a still photographer a wide angle stuck in somebody's face uh, is comedic a wide angle stuck close to a product is dramatic there's a lot of psychology to uh, perspective where you're standing in relationship to the subject you can have a kind of an interview that's that's uh, very uh, intimate uh, and you can have one that's kind of uh, standoffish i classically well in that piece that you're making reference to doing the talking heads when i'm doing a confessional or you know a little interview with somebody 
I wasn't even paying attention to how it was really done in, in most documentaries. Generally speaking, the, the person on camera talks off axis to, you know, just to the left of the camera, just to the right of the camera, to an interviewer. I was working by myself and I wanted to learn a little bit something about who Holly's parents were, who she was. So my trick, and, and it wasn't very much of a conscious trick, I was setting up the camera and I was planning to do sort of a, uh, this this inter- interview sequence and didn't understand that notion that maybe you have the camera be a, a third person observer and the, the subject is talking off axis. I'm pretty fast technically, so I'd get the camera set up and I'm already ready to roll. Uh, what I did in this instance was I, I rolled the camera and then I, I pretended that I was still messing around with the camera and I was confused by it and trying to figure things out. And I said, but let's warm up. I'm going to ask you some questions like, you know, you could tell me what you think about uh, competition and, you know, prompt them. I, I learned pretty quick. You can't answer, ask any question that can be answered with yes or no. You have to get someone to explain in a complete manner uh, what it is you're trying to elicit from them. So trial and error. It was a certain amount of trial and error in that regard. But as I was talking to them or engaging them to speak to me, I slowly sort of periscoped down behind the camera like I was having to look at the LCD. And as my eye line dropped from above the camera on the tripod to down below, their eye line naturally went to the lens, which is not something people are normally comfortable with. But since they didn't know I was really recording and that this wasn't the real deal, this was just us getting ready, mm-hmm. uh, I got some, you know, fairly, uh, I think, f- fresh and, and, and heartfelt responses. And, and that's one of the things that I, I share when I'm out teaching, you know, is that just because things are done a certain way doesn't mean that that's how you have to do it. You're, we're all unique, and, and it seems like we spend our lives killing that uniqueness by mimicking those things which we see that we admire. Yeah, Terrible, terrible thing to do to yourself. Much better to take the chance that, that you could succeed as well as fail by trying to do something in a new and unique way. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm reinventing the wheel ever, but just trying little things differently can often add up to a really unique look. Did you find that when you looked at all the pictures when I looked at all the photograph all the all the footage there I could envision them as just individual still photographs that were amazingly beautiful did having that wealth of imagery really help you when it came down to editing it in terms of being able to tell a story and and to keep it really engaged because it's over 6 minutes and usually it's a real challenge to make something effective that's that long Mm-hmm. Uh, but you pull it off beautifully. How how much of a role was the fact that you had just really good-looking footage to work with in terms of being able to reach that goal? Critical. It's of critical importance. You know, it's classically said that the best photographers are the ones with the deepest wastebasket. Shoot a lot. It's always important. Uh, and in uh, creating a, a, a great sequence, you want to have a good mix of master shots, medium shots, close-ups, over the shoulders. There's there's traditional elements of montage that that are easy to learn about and essential to learn about. Uh, even the most radical filmmaking still acknowledges the classic montage techniques. And you can't assemble anything unless you have a bunch of building elements, and they're not all bricks. 
You know, you have a lot of different materials to build a beautiful structure, and that's what you need to concentrate on capturing. Uh, it's it's ridiculously obvious, but I always like to look at and analyze the ridiculously obvious. We shoot everything for motion as a horizontals. As still photographers, you want to communicate a sense of verticality. You sometimes whip your camera into the vertical mode. Don't have that option with motion picture work unless you want everybody to suddenly break their necks snapping them over in the movie theater. Um, so learning how to communicate uh, verticality, learning how to communicate uh, different compositional structures in the horizontal frame is something that is an interesting and a fun challenge. I, I learned, uh, I had the great, great pleasure of uh, directing Jordan Cronenwith, uh, Jeff Cronenwith's dad, many years ago when I was doing a, a series of ads for uh, Chevrolet. And uh, Jordan had, had recently finished Blade Runner, which I still think is one of the most beautiful movies ever made. And it was just in, before the digital era, all the models and miniatures in that were practical constructions and just blue screen. Working with Jordan was a, a, a unique and, and wonderful experience. He, he passed not too long after that, uh, and at this time he wasn't in the best physical condition. Uh, his camera assistant actually had to carry him to the, the dolly. Mm. Um, but Jordan did something that I was, thought was fascinating. We had a pre-light day one day, and he was working with key grip, and Jordan had hand-selected a particular Panavision that was the one he worked with every single time and uh, had selected it for the whatever alchemy he found in it of the combination of that particular ground glass and that particular viewfinder system. But uh, each noteworthy cameraman essentially had their own rental package that they worked with. And Jordan was sitting on the dolly looking at, through the Panavision and we were lighting a set. And Jordan almost always, well, I worked with him, almost always started with a backlight and then used to bounce as you might do in nature you know you tend to work side or backlight for that beautiful rimlet kind of look and then you hope that there's a building nearby or maybe you bring a reflector into the foreground and that's the kind of things that he was doing but one of the things i noticed was that he was looking at the set through the viewfinder as the the grips were tweaking uh, a big light up in the uh, permanence and uh, he had his left eye open I could see his left eye moving as he was scanning the frame with his dominant viewfinder right eye. And I asked him about that, and he said, well, you know, I, I, because of the differences in focal length, I might be using a telephoto one minute, I might be using a wide the next, but I can always see what the performance is with my left eye. So he would sort of assign the vision from one or assign his, his concentration from one eye to the other, I, I adopted that same technique, and I now I would say I intuitively compose with my right eye, and I'm watching performance, and I'm watching for opportunity with my left eye. Mm. In other words, there might be a boom mic just out of frame that's threatening to come in. I might have been just ready to tilt up to get a slightly different composition or to make the shot evolve, but because now I have my left eye open i i know that that mic is there and it will spoil the shot yeah. motion picture work the key thing that i can say about that is that it's composition it's composition from beginning to end as a still shooter i might shoot the same shot with just little tiny tweaks to the composition a little more dutch a little more asymmetry a little more negative space here a little less over there 
And each one of those frames might be working my way toward the ultimate best solution that I can come up in the moment. When you're shooting motion, every frame has to be good and you have to evolve during the shot from something that's good to something that is also good. So a lot of it, again, is that tactile, tangible, hands-on aspect of doing a lot of shooting. And that's that rodeo piece was very good for me because it was a target-rich environment. I could go out there and go, okay, I'm going to concentrate on telly stuff of the horses in the arena. And then on another afternoon or a few hours later, I could go, okay, I'm going to build a little confessional area over here and bring some cowboys and cowgirls over here and interview them. A lot of opportunity. And it, as it turned out, a group that was very gracious and very welcoming and uh, loved that, that I took an interest in them and just opened their hearts and uh, their arena to whatever it is I wanted to try to do. There's, that's just incredibly valuable to work somewhere where the people welcome you and give you a lot of opportunity to explore. Yeah. Well, the, these cameras offer a great advantage in their small form factor and their low light capability, and they're just—it's beautiful imagery to look at. But as you mentioned, there are some challenges involved with that, not least of which is just just handling the camera. So, what did you talk about? How you decided to create your own solution for controlling those various aspects of the camera, as opposed to using some of the rigs that started coming up or sprouting up uh, soon after that camera was uh, introduced? Yeah, uh, a lot of the stuff that's out there is uh, really based in ENG, electronic news gathering. You know, the, 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 the video cameras really made their, their main impact in news because of the, uh, the quick turnaround requirements. Uh, film remained king and narrative and fine documentary work uh, up until very recently. Um, and as video cameras evolved, one of the first things they did was they, they, were, they were huge to begin with because the technologies just hadn't, hadn't evolved to make them more miniature. And as they're bigger, you needed somehow to support them. So a lot of them evolved into being shoulder rig, uh, you know, had a, a curved area in the back of the camera so you could throw it on your shoulder and the viewfinder was offset to one side and you stick it up to your eye and now you're a walking camera stand uh, you know and and that was appropriate when when they first came out there were the size of an american tourister briefcase you know and, and weighed a ton so you had to do that but we're not wimps we carry around slrs and we've got our, our little um image stabilized lenses and i can I, i'm not the, the the biggest baddest guy on the planet but a little slr is nothing for me to hold up to my eye for a little while um I, I think it became one of those things where the industry was trying to uh, um, continue an existing technology that they had developed for the bigger form factor cameras and, and make us believe that we had to have it for the smaller cameras. In the process, taking what is a very, uh, you know, understated and uh, surreptitious filming technique of using an SLR as a movie camera into something that is uh, awkward, cumbersome, and too big for the task. I just don't like them. I think it's nuts to go into the big uh, Tinker Toy rigs and, and take this thing from all, remove, remove all the advantages of the miniature camera and replace them with uh, some structure that makes you, quotes, end quotes, look professional. Um, I hate that stuff. So what I wanted to do was keep it as much like a still camera as possible. 
be able to hang it over my shoulder on a strap like I've always done. I actually have one over each shoulder, something with a 70 to 200 on my one side and something with a 24 to 105 or 16 to 35 on the other side and uh, be able to shoot video and shoot it in a, a really sort of uh, unobtrusive manner. So first thing I did was I adapted a loop um, the rigs that I make through IDC Photo Video, uh, System Zero in particular, uh, contour-formed base plate. In other words, I make a custom-fit plate that fits the unique contours of the particular camera, kind of like Really Right Stuff does with their uh, L brackets. I measure the bases of the camera, figure out all the dimensions to the lens center line, uh, adapt. You can either use a, a Zacuto viewfinder on mine, a Zacuto a loop, or uh, I modify the Hoodman loops, which are very inexpensive, but still pretty darn good and a lot of diopter adjustment. And then I needed a follow focus. So most of the follow focus rigs, uh, which is essentially reassigning the task of turning the focusing ring to a wheel assembly, like a traditional Hollywood camera has with a, a whip drive or a crank drive built into it, all of them today use a gearbox, and, and generally speaking, you have to have 15-millimeter rods, and now the camera's starting to grow, getting bigger and bigger. I made a base plate that takes my viewfinder. I made a focusing plate that uh, accommodates the different lengths of lenses that you might use, and then a really simple, minimalist-designed and ergonomically correct focusing wheel. Now, most follow focuses use is a gearbox between the focusing wheel and the focusing ring on the lens, and that serves the function of changing the, the rotational direction at an extra time. It seemed to me that if a camera accessory was 100% intuitive, it would do nothing but improve the quality of your filmmaking. When I went out and bought my first follow focus rig for whatever I was using back then, some kind of a, a larger camera, one of the things I noticed was it was counterintuitive. When I rotated the wheel effectively, rolled the wheel back toward my face, the focus didn't come back toward me. It went away because there was an extra gear in there. In the first generation of my follow focus, I used a direct friction drive, an O-ring rather than a gear. So you just put on your regular Canon lens or your Nikon lens or your Olympus lens, whatever your rig was. And if the camera rotated in the class, if the focusing ring rotates in the classic Leica established direction, when you make direct contact between the focusing wheel and the lens, you roll the wheel away from you, the focus goes away. You roll the wheel back, the focus comes to you. Um, Nikon's, well, you know, Nikon and Canon got to do everything opposite. Canon happens to be the same as Leica in all its directions. Nikon happens to be the opposite. Um, so, with with my follow focus, which is very compact, doesn't change the form of the camera very much, still allows you to throw it in your gadget bag, sling it over your shoulder, handhold it for a minute or so. You know, If you're getting into really longer takes, I suggest that you're on the sticks or a monopod, but I like a really light form factor camera that works intuitively. You roll the focus wheel away from you, the focus goes away. It makes gaining that skill set a lot easier. Uh, I also believe that you can get away with all kinds of stuff if you fly under the radar. And the less junk you're carrying with you, the more you slip under the radar. So I just started 
my philosophy is when I reach for a tool, if it's not there, I make the tool. I'm a, I'm a mechanic at heart. I mentioned, I think, earlier on that I was working in a Texaco station when I got my first break as a photographer. I still have a good little shop in my garage, and I build custom motorcycles and race cars and stuff. And so if I need something, I build it. And in this case, I built quite a few things, and I just made them available to other photographers who share my philosophy of less is more. And, yeah. Uh, that's what IDC photo video is about. Well, I really appreciate the the gear because since I've been I've been using it, it's been really invaluable to me uh, for many of the reasons that you indicated the the small form factor, the fact that I can store that all in in my larger camera bag. Um, but what I think one of the biggest assets about it is the fact when I'm when I'm using it, it really kind of translates to the way I normally use a camera. When I've tried to use those other rigs, I've had to completely rethink how I handle the camera, how I shoot with it. And by keeping things very simple and clean, I don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, I just have to do a couple of things very, you know, differently because I'm shooting video, but I can just jump into it. And, and I don't have a lot of things that can really end up slowing me down where all of a sudden the camera itself becomes more the focus of attention than what's happening in front of the lens. Yeah, well, gratifying to hear that. I, I promise you, that's that's very gratifying, and we do hear it from our customers. Uh, you know, I think our our approach resonates more with the still photographer making the transition rather than the guys in the film, you know, long term film industry guys who are kind of used to uh, a whole gang of people supporting the camera, lots of stuff around it. Uh, honestly, I, I think it it. Uh, it's, it promotes good shooting hygiene. What a strange way to put it. But I'm used to triangulating my elbows, you know, supporting the camera in a certain way. I put my eye to the viewfinder. I've got three points of contact, my eye, two hands, and my, my uh, elbows are braced against my torso when I need a lot of stability. I know that stuff. I do that stuff instinctually. With the IDC uh, System Zero rig, you simply shift your eye from the Pentaprism viewfinder down to the loop viewfinder. You now take charge of the focus. I, I honestly, it baffles me why you would want to have a set of handlebars sticking out in space uh, and and hold the camera that way when you need to adjust the iris. Perhaps in the middle of a shot, a cloud might come over and reduce your your light by two and a half stops. I. When, I, when I'm holding the camera, as I traditionally do, I just roll the thumb wheel, make the compensation I, I need to make. My hand is there to do the focus. Everything is where it needs to be. Uh, the other stuff is really, a, 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 I, I don't want to demean it, but it's kind of a monkey see, monkey do thing where, oh, the pros use this, so if I get this, I'll be a pro too. Uh, and, and honestly, one of the things that is is most mind-blowing to me is when I see a nice little SLR on a a tripod uh, that's maybe not even a fluid head, but they've got a, a $3,500 map box on the front of it and no filter. You know, it's, it's, I, I come from the area when a map box was actually used for shooting mats. You know, you would expose half of the frame and have the other half covered and you do in camera special effects by using mats in the mat box. Now it's essentially a, a, a really nice, expensive lens hood, but so many people fail to see that it's the functionality of the tool, not the complexity of the tool, 
that makes it a successful tool. Yeah. So now that you have all these years under the belt now using these cameras and, and being able to tell stories with it, what for you is the, the most fun aspect about it, especially compared to the way you used to do things? Do you find that some new opportunities, not just professionally, but I mean creatively have opened up to you as a result of, of, of embracing this? Yeah. You know, I love the creative army. I love a production crew. Nothing quite like getting out of the, the car at, you know, oh, dark 30 uh, outside of the Great Pyramids. And there's uh, the, your whole team there. There's chariots and there's Romans and there's cameras and there's big reflector boards. I mean, it's a gas. But it's also fantastic to be able to go out with a couple of really cool actors and 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 set up a scene in, in St. Marcos Square and nobody knows you're doing it. You just you just look like a tourist taking a couple of pictures or an, another guy waving a camera around but in fact you could be in the middle of a really great independent film. Uh the ability to work quickly, independently and inexpensively and have a conduit uh, through which you can release that creativity later. You know, Vimeo, any of these uh, video networking sites that are starting to emerge. The opportunities are unbelievable now. I'm very pleased at the era that I came through the industry. I mean, I, I enjoyed being in the pre, in the analog uh, special effects area through the digital effects era. All the stuff I experienced, I wouldn't trade for the world. But I, 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 I just think it's a time to be starting now as well even with the economy the way it is and in fact maybe especially with the economy the way it is you can do stuff that I wouldn't have even dreamed of trying back then because I knew I had to raise the money to buy a thousand feet of film to process a thousand feet of film and that's just the tip of the iceberg you know that gets me through the first half of a day now I can go out and if I've got a solid concept I can execute it and I can deliver it. And for me, in terms of the, the specifics of it, you know, I've spent a lot of time doing big, high-budget projects where everything was fully controlled. My pleasure right now is in this documentary stuff. I'm, I'm currently involved in a uh, around-the-world adventure. I'm traveling with a team of explorers that are uh, attempting to, to drive a couple of uh, um, highly customized uh, off-road vehicles across all seven continents. And uh, we started in April, April 20th, on the pack ice above Prudhoe Bay. I was shooting 5D, 60D, and C300 at 45 below zero up in uh, Alaska. Uh, later this summer, we had finished 18 countries, uh, and we're in Europe uh, ultimately, the team went across uh, Russia and Siberia, and now I'm prepping for Australia, Africa, uh, South America, and Antarctica. And I work out of my lap. I, I got a seat in one of these vehicles. I've got a Steadicam Merlin II uh, with a 60D on it. I got a 5D Mark III with an IDC System Zero XL, and then I've got a C300 on a IDC System One for my sticks work. Got a all-terrain dolly that I designed that's on the side. And we're going around the world making exquisite footage. And it's just open up doors after doors. You know, um, I'm uh, approaching clients like uh, Toyota and uh, Mobile Oil and Cooper Tire and all these different uh, big companies. And I have a new 
a new product to sell and I have a uh, uh, achievable and economical way to to provide them with content as uh, as the need for web content expands. Oh. Well, my last question I ask each guest is that I ask them to suggest or recommend another photographer for listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So, who would that one photographer be, and why? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, jump away from photographer to cinematographer and uh, a, a specific guy who I've I've known quite a while and I really love John Fowler and he publishes Film and Digital Times and I'm gonna suggest John because he has uh, literally written the book on uh, cinematography. He has a couple of DVDs and some books out called uh, Cinematographer Style. And, and John, to his great credit, and we should all thank him for this, rounded up every significant cinematographer alive and interviewed them. And it was uh, philosophy. It was less about, oh, cameras, f-stops, all that stuff. And it was more about, you know, same kind of questions you're asking. How did you get here? Uh, what were the influences? Uh, so cinematographers, cinematographer style, by John Fowler, available through, I think, uh, um, American Society of Cinematographers and John's website, Film and Digital Times. Uh, you can get it through there. That, that's, that's like, um, you know, sort of taking the cap off of a, or taking the cork out of a bottle of champagne. There's just <laughs> so much incredible stuff going to come flying out of that link. Uh, you won't believe it. So, and where can people find out more about you and everything that you're doing? Well, uh, IDC photo video, it's easy to remember. I don't care because I just don't care. I do it my way. IDCphotovideo.com. I got a little blog there. That's the site uh, where I post a lot of my videos. There's a link to some work I've done with the C300s and various SLRs. Um, that's a good spot. I'm going to be starting, a, or, or very soon there will be a series of uh, uh, webisodes um, hosted by uh, Western Digital, the data management company, Western Digital. I'm one of their creative masters, and they've engaged me to do, uh, oh, I think about 30 or 40 webisodes on adventure cinematography. There's bits to be learned there for the still guys as well. I don't put a lot of uh, boundaries between the two art forms, and uh, that should start to air pretty soon. I think I've got the first eight episodes in the can, and that particular thing follows me on this aspects of this around the world adventure. Wow. And then uh, lots of plans afoot. Um, one thing I can say is that having uh, opened my mind up to the possibility of motion capture once again, after sort of returning to stills heavily, uh, is that it's opened a lot of doors. And so if you get on IDC photo video and follow me on the blog, I'll be announcing them there and lots of interesting stuff in the pipeline. Well, thanks so much, Bruce. It was a pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. 
Music is by Kevin McLeod, and this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. Mm-hmm.